Iris Kraus, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, good to be here. Excellent. Uh, so you are the Chief Financial and Operation Officers at Wisdom Labs, uh, this organization that's bringing wisdom into work, things like resilience, emotional well-being, and mindful leadership to drive productivity and well-being. And while we will probably touch upon that, maybe at the tail end of this conversation, I'm really curious about how you've redefined success, and in many respects, that's a lot of what uh, the work you're doing. So I'm hoping that you could start by just talking about your own particular journey. How did you sort of get to where you're at now, maybe starting where you're from? Sure. Thanks, everyone. Happy to do that. So I'm, I'm an immigrant. I really I grew up in East Germany, born and raised communist, as I say, only half-jokingly. <laughs> yeah. um, did uh, Then left East Germany when the war came down. Mm-hmm and studied business in France. I didn't speak any English. I speak Russian, but no English. And so I um, went to the US through an internship, went to San Francisco, fell in love with the Bay Area. And so I decided to, after graduating, try to find a job in the US, which ended up being in New York. I Actually, it was in Newark, New Jersey. I thought it was New York. As I said, I didn't speak any English. <laughs> so Newark was quite a different place. And so I worked in finance, which Mm. was really exciting at first. I learned a lot. I didn't know anything about capitalism, about money, Mm. about how business worked. So I I learned a lot. I grew. It was fun. It was exciting. I traveled. I met a lot of great companies, great businesses. But, you know, after 10 years, maybe 12, 15 years, um, I wasn't so sure anymore why I was there. Mm. And it was interesting because... In some sense, I had it all. I had a big job, a big title, more money than I ever dreamt of, nice house, kids in private schools. Everything was great, yet I was not happy. Mm. I was not thriving. I was questioning why I was there. I noticed that when I met friends, I avoided talking about my work. Mm. I was not proud of it. I was um, ashamed was too much, but I clearly did not belong. Right. My husband always said, Sunday night, I put my armor back on and I was ready to go get him, <laughs> but he couldn't reach me anymore. Really? I was off on my wow. my different part of me. And yeah, there were really two sides of me that, that, mm-hmm. didn't, that didn't go together. I didn't have the ability to, while I was working like that, slow down and figure it out. Mm-hmm. So um, right before I reached my 20th anniversary at this company, I'm a little slow, it took me a long time. Mm-hmm. I decided to quit hmm. and just take a break. Right. So I went to Esalen, yeah. a retreat in Big Sur, and uh, just took a week to myself, which right. was really unique, right? I had never done that. Having kids to so take a yeah. week to yourself was just amazing. And what I realized is I needed to do something. I need to bring these two sides of me back together, yeah. like the corporate successful go-getter with the person who did yoga and meditation and had a home birth. And so I started my own business at first um, called Mindful Advisory to help companies with financial advice because I realized I have some skill, I have something to offer. So I, after briefly considering it, rejected the idea of opening a yoga studio, which was on my mind, but then I realized, okay, I know a lot about finance and (laughs) business. So did that. And then later on, joined the company Wisdom Labs that I'm with now. Excellent. 
So I'm curious of a couple of things. One, uh, this sort of interest in skill and finance, and then this other interest in yoga, mindfulness, and uh, what falls under that general umbrella. So to first address finance, presumably this was something that was interesting and still is to you. What is it about finance that piqued your interest originally as a course of study and ultimately a big part of your career? You know, it's interesting. It was really happenstance. I wasn't interested in finance. Uh, <laughs> I was, you know, I didn't read the Wall Street Journal for fun. I was good at it. Okay. And it really was driven by wanting, looking for a job in the U.S. And I was like, okay, it was hard when coming yeah. from Europe to get a visa. This company was um, looking for people. I happened to be sponsored by a certain scholarship, which is um, in Germany, the top 1% of students can get this special scholarship. Mm -hmm. And through that, I ended up at Prudential. Finance was something that was easy for me because okay. I'm a very analytical thinker. What I liked about the job was I got to know business owners, business mm -hmm. owners who pursued a passion and grew a business. You know, sometimes I was like, oh, wow, it's amazing. I get paid for meeting these people who, you know, I remember one in particular, they were doing something to help people with um, speech impediments and they had sensors in the tongue and like, wow. you know, I'm like, oh my God, I get a tour of this or I got a tour of a plant in... Um, somewhere in San Jose area where they grew silica right. and like learning how to make microchips and financing those companies. So for me, that business and that growth was interesting. Mm -hmm. How does this work? And so it, it was exciting in that sense, but I'm not the person who reads the Wall Street Journal yeah. for fun. I don't follow the stock market, but it was something I could do. And right. in a sense, I, you know, I ended up in this path because that's what one does, right? You right. go from once I started you know, I started as an analyst, then you go to a senior analyst, then you're an associate, and then at some point you want to keep climbing. Yeah. And it's natural. You don't question anymore why. Right. So when did you become interested in wellness and well-being, yoga, mindfulness? Mm -hmm. Was that something that had always been a part of you, or was there a particular shift, or was it gradual? I think it was pretty gradual. I was always active and, you know, in that sense, but... Probably having kids, I started like, you know, prenatal yoga and kind of, you know, in the Bay Area, you absorb that kind of different right. way of thinking and being. And then, you know, having a home birth with my second child was one of those important experiences and uh, getting into the community of people who maybe questioned the traditional way of thinking. Right. That, that's how it started. And then realizing that when I talked about that at my work, I would get these stares like, wait a minute, you didn't make it to the hospital? Yeah. And I'm like, no, I chose not to, right? Yeah. Or even how we as a family choose to, what schools we were choosing, where we went on vacation, like we would go camping and loved yeah. it. And the questions I got at my work is like, why couldn't you afford a hotel? Yeah. Uh, and really. so I, I just realized that we were just different. Yeah. And that led to loneliness, right? Mm. I didn't belong. I was lonely, which is, which is a big challenge, right? It's, it's bigger than, you know, in, in a sense, like not performing or not making money. If you feel lonely, it's really hard. Right. Absolutely. And when did you really begin to notice within the context of, of work and finance always conjures, at least in my mind, much more traditional uh, conventional aspects of, of work and uh, success and so forth. What, when did you start realizing there was something really missing 
and that you maybe were questioning uh, to what degree could you continue on that particular path if it felt lopsided or unbalanced? What, what did you start noticing was not present at work? You know, not being fulfilled. And there were several instances, like, you know, my husband's comment, hey, on Sunday night you put your armor mm. on, you're a different person. Right. He would comment on how much faster I spoke when I was mm. in the work mode, mm. even like observing me when I worked at home. I remember being... You know, pregnant with my second child over Thanksgiving and uh, being on nonstop conference calls and at some point, you know, literally like pausing the call, going to vomit, going back, like that, right. that kind of stress on Thanksgiving Day. And my husband said, could you say good morning before you, you know, start working? Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. Right? Right. And I realized how intense it was and it was a different me and it got mm. harder and harder to shift. Right. And really being embarrassed kind of about it. Like, you know, early on I was so excited about the work and I shared my performance reviews with my parents and right. I was so proud. And then later I was just like, yeah, I need this job to make money and yeah. to pay for right, our life. But I wasn't proud anymore. Right. And I did not belong. I did not socialize with my colleagues. Like, mm, I didn't yeah. go, you know, when we had conferences, these big, you know, boondoggles and yeah. fancy places. <laughs> It was a burden for me. I would yeah. much rather be in my room, read a book, right. than go to the cocktail hour and have yet another drink. Yeah. And I would stand there with my sparkling water right. <laughs> right while everybody was getting drunk. And I just, I didn't belong. Yeah. And that was really hard. And I was right. very, I think I was deeply unhappy. And it was so weird because there was this, when I told people, oh, you're so successful, look, from right. East Germany, and now you're here. And, and I was like, yeah, but... It doesn't, it doesn't feel right. right. And truthfully, whether my company financed this business or somebody else, right. what impact was there? Yeah. Right. Well, I think it's so fascinating because there is a seismic shift. It feels like happening internally, whether it be in, on a cultural level, within organizations, uh, as a culture uh, writ large, or just in individual lives. So I think your story does really resonate. I'm curious, what was your traditional um, definition of success uh, originally that got you on the track? Like, what were you, and it seems like you achieved that, but, but what was your original definition, or what do you think many people still within corporate America, for example, might define as success? You know what? I didn't have a definition. Okay. I think it was... I think it was just in the society and absorbed by that. Right. Like, if you had asked me... I couldn't have put that to words. Right. It was not even questioned. I mean, mm. at first it was make enough money to pay my rent and still yeah. have left over for food, right? Yeah. But then it's just, it's that, I think it's unspoken. It's somewhere in the air that you want to go up and up and up and up. Climbing the right? ladder, yeah. And so it wasn't questioned by me. And I think it was, that's what everybody expects. You want a good job, you want a right. big title, and you know, you need to have a house and then you want a second car and that's how it happens right so I don't think I had a definition right and then I woke up and it's you know kind of in the spiritual sense this awakening and you right. realize oh my god there are other people experiencing the same or asking the same questions and also wondering what actually matters and right. that, that's the the beauty right getting yeah. into this yoga mindfulness meditation community I went to Wisdom 2.0 and events like that. And I met, and I met other people who were questioning right. and had made changes. Yeah. 
So now, uh, <clears throat> how would you define success? Uh, and I guess I'll back up a little bit by saying that working in the context that I do with, as an educator in high school, uh, and we live in Marin, and so they're already in the Bay Area, so there's already um, other versions of what success is. So, so there's much more of a spectrum. Nonetheless, it's the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, where even if there are these aspirations to change the, change the world, there still is a lot of aspirations for just wealth and consumerism. Uh, and so what I really notice is that conventional sense, what does the culture of the media really uh, seem to implicitly or explicitly imply, and it's generally money, and there's mm-hmm. certain kinds of jobs that have a certain amount of status, because you want yes. respect from others. It's funny how there's never about, what about authenticity and respect for yourself right. uh, and your own particular <clears throat> values? Uh, that, that definitely seems like an afterthought. So I think that's what I've come to see. It's generally about money, and it's generally about, oh, is that a high-status job right. that seems to convey your worth, your intelligence, uh, and so forth, what schools you go to, things yes. like that. So I think that's pretty standard still. As you began to uh, go through this process of self-discovery and figuring out what success means to you, uh, what, what were some of the things that you were noticing that were absent within the context of work and culture mm-hmm. that you um, have now come to see are desperately needed and hence yeah. you're really bringing that, injecting that into work environments? You know, first of all, it's not an easy path because you go against the convention, right? Right. I mean, parents even define themselves by the schools that kids get into, right? So, you know, how do you just stand up and say, I'm different? And I think Mm -hmm. for me, the first thing was aligning myself with my my inner values. And to find those, I had to find like a point of stillness in myself, like what matters and be okay with that. And, you know, be okay with not having as much as somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of discussion with the kids about what matters to us as a family. And I mean, we have even living in Marin and owning a home. We're very well off, right? Sure. But just to say, hey, having dinner together as a family and playing a game and chatting, that's what matters, Right. right? And we can be completely happy with, you know, going camping together. So it's like being okay with it and bringing it up and talking about it. And the other big piece for me is impact. Like, you know, doing work where I feel like we are making a change. Right. Like, it's so fun when, you know, I hear from our clients and they say, God, this workshop changed my life. It changed how I talk to my teenager. Right. We jokingly say, when there's no, no tears in the audience, we didn't, we did something wrong, we didn't reach people but changing lives, right? Yeah. And for me, then living in alignment with what I do for myself and my family, right. that I also do at work, it shows up like yesterday I had to let go somebody at work, yeah. which is very hard in any situation for a starter, but doing it in a way that is fair, authentic, right. right. You know, that we were joking and felt good and right about it. So joking in a positive way, like it was... Right. He was really, you know, it was just the contractor, but, you know, it was just like having integrity so I don't lie awake at night feeling bad. And, you know, when I look in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, I respect that person. Right. Right? That that really matters. And I'm not embarrassed about doing something or feel like it's not entirely ethical. Right. Right. You know, pushing 
like in my past job, I would, you know, my company wanted to win the financing. Yeah. Maybe it was not always the best for the client, right. but the goal was, of course, to, to do this. So now saying what we do is really what I think is right. right. And that, that feels good. So living in this inner alignment yeah. is the key. Definitely. I like what you were saying about what seems so simple, being able to have dinner and conversation with your family, mm -hmm. be able to play a game. And while I think this was more normative, you know, decades ago, yeah. it's funny how it's, it's actually not funny. It's pretty tragic how that's become less frequent and mm -hmm. more anomalous uh, because of the connectivity and distraction and everyone's working and everyone has things to do. And yet we can't make time, it seems, as frequently right. as we used to, to be able to just connect, to be able to slow down. Um, so in many respects, it seems that the most important things in life actually aren't things. You know, it's right. people, it's relationships, it's and, and, and at some point you have to get off that particular treadmill just to pause right. and reflect, and that's the one thing people don't seem to have time for. And um, even be bored. I think yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research around that for kids, right? I mean, yeah. it's not just work that causes yeah. us not to be together as a family. It's kids do these activities and this, and they got to do right. this, so they get into school, and you put them on this pressure right. instead of just saying, you know what, we have nothing planned today. And if you're right. bored, that leads to creativity, right? You might discover something about yourself. Like, you know, this last last week, it was you know, over 100 degree, right. degrees right, at our house. And of all things, the internet died and the yeah. home phone, <laughs> yeah. of course, which leads to crabbiness, right? There was yeah. no camps, the kids were home, but all of a sudden they get ideas to do something creative, right? right? So they yeah. had a couple of girls at home and they make rainbow smoothies with different food colorings and you know, it yeah. was so much fun. Right. Why not do that, right? You know, there's not enough of that. I mean, the one thing I've really seen when I grew up in the foothills of uh, the Sierra Nevadas, uh, you know, we just, there was no internet, you know, there was very little TV uh, mm -hmm. reception. And so there was so much free play, so much imagination. And now I just see how, how sort of scripted kids' lives are from practically preschool to yeah college right. to where it doesn't enable them to be able to have that space to roam physically but also in their imagination right. and, it, and what a deficit there is when there's not that childhood there but everything's in preparation this conveyor belt to college and a quote success which is why I know that we've had these conversations before and it seems there's a real um, you know, there, there should be more coordination between those that educate students and those that hire them. <laughs> yes. And, and so there is a real alignment with the work that you're doing. <clears throat> and I know that some of the work that's happening here at San Domenico that I'm doing around purpose. Mm -hmm. And what's so great is so much of traditional learning is about extrinsic motivation, lots of carrots and sticks, sure. very little sense of intrinsic motivation, what is purposeful and meaningful in the lives of students. And when I've had the opportunity... Uh, to do deeper dives, it's amazing how much they just are so hungry, right. almost starving for that kind of inquiry and conversation. Uh, and just to see them come alive and animated in a way is, is one, just very hopeful because then hopefully they take that energy with them where they go and just think about the impact that can have, um, not only on them and their friends, but then in whatever work they decide to do. So... Yeah, it is. You know, it is interesting. But I think that's what's so hopeful is that I think we've recognized, we're recognizing as a culture how 
we've swung so far to one end of, of mm-hmm. a pendulum that there's just natural this momentum that has to move in the other direction. So when people start hearing about the importance of meaning and purpose, uh, the importance of looking and understanding their own values, of inquiry, of slowing down, there's almost like, thank God, someone's yeah. talking about and doing right. it because it gives them permission to be able to uh, perhaps do the same. Absolutely. And it's interesting, like, the more... I do it myself the more I find other people doing it too and books and podcasts and so much around it and I think for for the kids the old way was like this prescribed path it wasn't theirs it was somehow you know they were not even aware but somehow they were put onto this treadmill right from this special preschool to get and and so on and Uh, so forth right to get to this college and now it's like well who am I? Right. Why does this matter? Right. I didn't ask those questions. I think the other piece in there is to go from kind of short-term instant gratification, which we are right. so accustomed to, right? Whether it is, you know, in work, the pay and the bonus yeah. and the title or at school, the grades or even the quick pleasure, right? The, yeah. oh, I got to get that ice cream. Right. I got to win the lottery right. and, and those things that research tells us that's short-term. It doesn't yeah. change your life, whereas happiness is long term, right? right. So it's, it really has a very different, different meaning, and it, it's not easy to get it, right? You can't right. just say, "Oh, how, how am I going to be happier?" Because it's much deeper, deeper, right? Yeah, so pleasure right. is visceral, while happiness is ethereal, right? You gotta, you will find it, but it's it's a state that you kind of come back to, right. like even if you experience a very difficult situation, like health wise or you know, mm-hmm. accident or anything like that, if you have a more positive outlook in life, right. you will get to that. And, you know, part of that is also thinking bigger than yourself, yeah. right? And I think also this beautiful research from the Greater Good Science Center about generosity, right? right? And when you, that actually it gives more to the giver in a sense right. than the receiver because we love to give. Yeah. And how can we instill that in our children. Absolutely. It's so beautiful that San Domenico has kind of that, that mindset and that awareness right. to say, you know what, it's not about spitting out, you know, a straight 4.0 or 4.5 yeah. students yeah. who get to this amazing colleges, but if we can have, you know, if our graduates can be aware, self-aware yeah. and kind and generous, yeah. our world would be different. Absolutely. Right? And, and equally as important, too, is grateful for what yes. they have. And, and what's interesting, I, I know a lot of this has come out of the Greater Good Science Center as well, this research on gratitude. It is one of the best measures for well-being, yes. how grateful you are. And it's interesting because we have a built-in negativity bias mm-hmm. because of evolution. And it's understandable when we're trying to defend saber-toothed tigers and other kind of animals that naturally as this little primate with not much claws <laughs> uh, or, or teeth like that, that, that we would naturally be on the lookout and guard for things that could harm us. But now we don't have those, the vast majority of humans, or at least in the United States, don't have those kind of threats. And yet we are operating as if you know, we're under this pressure for survival. Um, so we have this negativity bias that doesn't cause us to take stock of what we have. And yet mm-hmm. it's pretty easy to develop that practice. I had some students that were, it had a pretty transformative impact just doing one activity around that, that it literally kind of rewired their brains. Nice. Uh, being seniors, 
really focused on wanting to get out of here, so not being present, focusing on what they don't have or what they needed to get, and then being able to just simply reflect on what they're grateful for on various levels, whether it be socially, the location of where they're living and going to school. And it was interesting to see just them slow down and begin to savor where they were at in a way that they perhaps never had. And of course, this is when you want to start it because then there's not as much conditioning you have to undo (laughs) later on in life. So yeah, I think generosity, gratitude, some of these almost new age kind of mantras. But what's great is that there's now science behind it and also great strategies for, in a very simple way, cultivating it. And it's, it, I mean, there are real health benefits, right? I, I was know. listening to a podcast yesterday, which I really like. It's called Bliss and Grit. And they were doing this mm. interview with Bob Pai. And he was talking about depression. And I mean, we have this epidemic of anxiety, suicide, right. and depression, right? Suicide, I think, is the second largest, biggest, highest cause of death for 10 to 34-year-olds. It's, it's 10 terrible. 10 to 34-year-olds. Yes. So wow. that's... And I mean, we know depression is such a huge issue, right? Right. And if you're depressed, you go to the doctor, you get medicine, right? Right. We know this. But what he was saying, depression is in your heart Mm. and gratitude is in your heart. And they can't coexist. So if you can, like do a simple exercise of every day, write down what you're grateful for. Right. Right. In the morning, in the evening, spend half hour it is a better medicine than all the drugs. And he was saying, if we all did this, our poor healthcare system would just fail, right? right? It would completely collapse because that's what happens right now. And I just, it, it's so sad to see that with young kids, right? right? To see the sadness and the struggle. So if we can get them on this path of thinking about who they are and what they want to do in life and right. what is the impact they can have it'll be super beneficial. Indeed. Uh, it makes me think of uh, Dr. Bill Damon, who's a psychologist at Stanford, an adolescent psychologist, and he said, the real challenge growing up today is not stress, which everyone seems to think, especially in very successful, highly educated places mm-hmm. like Marin right. and parts of the Bay Area. So it's not stress, it's meaninglessness, uh, which I think is really kind of a profound statement. Uh, and some of the, the demographic research that's come out is high school students, while they're in school, are the most stressed out demographic in the country. And it's not because they have too much to do. It's because they don't know why they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's no sense of agency. There's no sense of purpose mm-hmm. and meaning connected to it. So there's this slippery slope to nihilism. I think a lot of that um, mental health issues are coming back because what's the point? And, and they're yeah, getting that right, sense, right, right. and they've lost um, all sense of free time, of play, everything. There's an arms race to get into college today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can just see how much more competitive it's become global. Uh, and everyone's aiming towards these schools. Not everyone can get in. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of intelligence. But the one thing everyone's um, not focused on is, is introspecting know thyself. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yet when anyone is given the opportunity in the right space where, of course, there's vulnerability that's required. So you have to know how to facilitate it in the right way. Uh, then then I think it's amazing how the lights can get turned on. So all of a sudden there's this dimming when there's things are meaninglessness. And then all of a sudden you're able to contact yes. some authentic part of yourself. And then there's a sense of hope. Because, of, as, uh, you know, as Frederick Nietzsche said, which I really like, 
if there's a if you have a why yeah. to live, you can bear with almost any. That's anyhow. funny. I was just gonna mention that quote. Yes. Oh yeah, I mean it's so profound. Yeah. I know that Viktor Frankl, the Austrian mm -hmm. psychotherapist, wrote *Man's Search for Meaning*. That was sort of the seed behind his whole logotherapy. Right. Meaning was the most essential thing. What allowed people to survive concentration camps um, were the ones yes. that had a why. The ones that lost it were most susceptible to mm -hmm. these horrific conditions, but then he saw that was the most important thing in any circumstance. Right. And to just see, we have everything, right? In the places like the Bay Area, it is, it is perceived as like a paradise, as a utopia, and yet it, it's, not, you know, it's, it's not impervious to uh, the mental health crisis. In fact, it might be more of a fever I was going to say, that's right, right? <laughs> And so how do you incorporate that at school? I remember you're talking yeah. about Project Wayfinder. Can right. you share a little more yeah, about that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, this is a pretty exciting partnership that we've developed. So Project Wayfinder is this curriculum. It, it was primarily designed for high school. Now they're designing for middle school, and they have it in college as well. It was developed at Stanford's D School, the K-12 lab, so the part, the wing of the design school that's focused on education. And they wanted to reimagine adolescent education focusing on purpose learning mm -hmm. for all the reasons that we've talked about. I think the listeners now understand the, the primacy of, of meaning and purpose. Um, the way that Bill Damon, who I alluded to earlier, defines purpose is ha uh, you know, having meaningful goals to the self that are consequential to the world mm -hmm. as well. So I think how that intersects, it's not just about passion and interest, right. but also right. Where can one hopefully make a difference in the world? Like, where is what can we be a part of something greater than ourselves? So that's really focused on that using developmental research, and they use this uh, the wayfinding metaphor, which is uh, you know how traditional wayfinders were, you know, indigenous cultures throughout the world. How did they get across vast tracts of land and sea? <laughs> They didn't move in a straight line. Things weren't linear. Right. And we all know if you're in nature, you don't walk in a straight line if you're right. in the natural world. You have to, in order to get where you're going, you have to have encyclopedic knowledge of where you are. You, know, mm -hmm. you have to be fully present where you are in order to navigate to where you want to go. So often today, where you're at is a means to an end. So you can yeah. be unconscious about where you are, right, not right, paying right. really any attention whatsoever. We all know this if we're flying or even driving down I-5 from San Francisco to L.A. <laughs> you can pretty much tune out. Right. <laughs> and so I think it's a way of reconnecting metaphorically with the natural world, which obviously mm -hmm. we're in desperate need to do, remap ourselves back into the biosphere and metaphorically uh, appreciate uh, what you know cultures and what our species is known for you know tens of thousands of years. So... So I think that that's pretty effective, um, the, the marriage of, of developmental research, purpose exemplars, and then a wayfinding metaphor. So uh, I went to an institute at the D School last summer to learn the curriculum, and then I was so enthusiastic. I'm like, we got to make this happen as soon as possible. Administration was very supportive. I taught a senior elective. Two weeks into it, I was, you know, I was asking for informal feedback. What do you guys think? Like, this should be a required class. Because uh, wow. it resonated in such a powerful way. And because of simply the seniors talking with seniors, juniors, mm -hmm. uh, we're doubling in uh, sections from two to four because there was nice. no marketing campaign on my end, but mm -hmm. it was simply word on the street. And then also what's really exciting is we're hosting a Project Wayfinder Summer Institute actually on Monday. Uh, so it's the first Wait. time they're leaving the D School at Stanford on the West Coast. 
Uh, and, uh, and so that's an excite, exciting partnership uh, that we're going to be doing. And I'm actually heading to do a training at a Quaker school in Philadelphia on Sunday. Nice. So I'll be there for a couple days. So it's really nice to see they're really conceiving uh, purpose learning as a movement in a similar way that mindfulness really crested as a movement, right. making like the cover of Time magazine. And now it's totally you know, legitimized by science and it's decoupled from religion. So whether mm -hmm. you have those impulses or not, there's a recognition that it's valuable. You right. might not be aiming for enlightenment, but you might just want greater sense of well-being, focus, clarity, yeah. resilience. And, uh, and so that's where I think their position, it's this growing movement, uh, it's global now, the Project Wayfinder. I think it's in 11 countries, 17 states, over 4,000 students. Nice had exposure so so that's just a bit of a, a backstory but but it's pretty exciting and uh, both Wayfinder and San Domenico really feel there's a sense of synergy between our partnerships because right. it really aligns um, our, our, our unique mission so that's great and it's great to see that the students are interested right yeah. that they really they pull it rather than just having to do yeah. it yet another required course which shows that it fills a void right people right. are so ready yeah. and I really think that the the whole mindfulness movement goes together with this because yeah. in a sense mindfulness is first being present right yeah. being self-aware aware of others right it's it's that kind of the first step you know non-judgmental mm -hmm. presence and then think about well why am i doing this who am i here it really yeah. goes together and i think if we can help you know, young kids early on ask those questions, give them different tools, and then do the same in the workplace over time. We can really change the world, right? Which is what yeah. we want, right? If you want to have a different approach to how we live with each other. Right. Yeah, and there's, you know, external technologies aren't required. Not that they can't aid the process, but it's these internal technologies. And, right. and in that respect, the more that those can spread, uh, then things can sort of spread at light speed, almost yes. in ripple effect in a very profound way. So, um, yeah, I would imagine that we'll hopefully reach some tipping points in terms of internal change and development. It and, really seems like it. Yeah. I, mean, I really feel like it's, there's so much more. You see so many more books and so much information right. about it. And, and yeah, the other piece I want to mention is behavior change, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really great to learn about this one once, but how do we get to a path of behavior change? Right. Right, because we all have been to these great workshops or listened to a great podcast. Yes, I'm gonna change it. I'm gonna do right, something different. Yeah. But how do you do it? And that is, of course, we know it. Intrinsic motivation is way better than extrinsic. Yeah. And of course, you also like a simple example. If you want to start working out, you need motivation. Okay. Yeah. You also need, you know, the environment. Right. You need running shoes mm -hmm. or a track or a gym membership right. or something. But the other important piece is community support. So. If I want to go running and whenever I leave the house, my husband makes fun of how I look, well, guess what? Yeah. I do it once, twice, and then forget it, right? Yeah. It's not going to happen. So we need each other. Yeah. So going back to my work at Wisdom Labs, one of the programs we do is called Communities. And the idea there is rather than just doing another workshop, which we do all day long, or giving people an app, which we also do, this, this is about building community building communities inside of companies, communities of practice and learning. So people like community leaders, the internal champions, basically lead groups inside their company, inside their department, supported by videos we provide, where they sit together and learn. 
first they learn, let's say, about overwhelm, mm -hmm. about um, compassionate work. Is there space right. for compassionate work? About creativity, about you know navigating stress. Right. All these topics, they get a little learning together. Right. They practice together. So if they learn about focus, they learn a practice to you know improve your focus. But then, and that's the key, the discussion, pro discussion prompts to talk about it, right. right? And what happens, what we found when we observe those groups and we get feedback, people love it. They talk to each other for the first time. Even though they have been working side by side, sometimes for years, all of a sudden they realize, oh, you also have, you know, a, you know, an aging parent you're dealing with or you have, you know, three kids you have to get out of the house in the morning and it's yeah. stressful and you're unhappy with how the dynamics work. And people open up, so they become vulnerable, right? right? Which builds psychological safety because they realize that they're shared humanity, right? We are all, whether you are the receptionist or the executive assistant or the CEO, we're all human. And as we connect with each other, we we relate and we are, but two things happen. We can work better together. Right. And because of I know myself, I know you, I can listen, <laughs> which right. is such a great skill, and collaborate. But then also we are healthier, right? right? Because you're kind of aligned with your own values. You know it's okay to leave early to pick up your child that is sick or go to their doctor's appointment yeah. because it matters. And you know you will still get your work done and do it better right. if you have taken care of yourself. And I think that's the important realization that... You know, there is a way, you know, I, I don't like the term work-life balance. I think it was, maybe it was Emiliana from the Greater Good Science Center who was talking about work-life harmony. Mm, I'd right. find the harmony right. and they support each other. There's, there is a place where you can be very healthy and happy and be an excellent performer. And that's, right. that's the place we want to find. It, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think it's so... Uh, inspirational to know and, and hopeful that now there's so much science and evidence behind mm -hmm. this coming out of places like Cal, the Greater Good Science Center, um, University of Pennsylvania, positive right. psychology. So whether it's not just focusing on neurosis, but what are our strengths? What allows us to actually flourish? Yeah. This was a ancient Greek ideal, <laughs> the eudaimonia, right. that that should be the, the, the sort of uh, the goal of education, which is human flourishing. <laughs> And, and so it seems that it's slowly coming back and being folded back into some of the aims that, that we should have uh, for, for learning and for, and for work. Now, the question I have um, is, what would you say, from your experience, is one of the core issues most organizations or companies need to address but have a blind spot for or just feel that you know, maybe they're skeptical about, is that going to really improve productivity? We have the time for that. But if there was one area that you think is probably very glaring, what, what comes to mind uh, with that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think companies are very aware of the stress, right. right? There's a lot of research on that, of kind of the burnout. There's also awareness, of course, when it shows up in turnover and absenteeism, I think what is what they're less aware of is the loneliness that mm -hmm. people face, right. the lack of belonging, right. which um, then leads to those consequences. Right? If you're lonely and you don't belong, you might quit. You might not be yeah. present, get work done. Right? You might get ill. But I think really looking at that 
yeah, that epidemic of loneliness and right. depression and address it in the workplace by allowing for connection. And that right. can absolute, that does not go against high performance. And I think right. that's the important piece to understand that it may not be immediate that day, right? You might lose, if you will, 30 minutes for doing a connection exercise or a day to do a connection team exercise right. or something, but the long-term benefit is there, right? right? So I think that, that to me is kind of the next step, the, the loneliness you see and helping people find the sense of belonging, their place where they want to be right. and see the meaning and impact of their work. Right. The millennials don't just work for money. Right. They want to be at a place that does good in the world. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the piece about loneliness. I know there's been a lot of uh, sociological research that's for the last, you know, probably 40, 50 years seeing this trend mm -hmm. of, of loneliness right. that's happening. And it seems that middle-aged men are the ones that are hit hardest by it in this country. A um, lot of probably reasons for it, but um, but just addressing and doing something about it, I think, is uh, so important. That is, from my understanding, one of the key components to meaning is feeling connected to community, yes. uh, being a part of um, of something greater than yourself. And one of the things that I uh, had read, there's a book called The Culture Code that looks at what mm -hmm. fosters great cultures, and one of the first elements is a sense of psychological safety right. you know yeah. meaning that you can be yourself you can communicate in a certain sort of way I know that um, the most innovative teams are the ones that have that in place which is right. interesting yeah and then what corresponds to that a sense of vulnerability um, so you know they they go hand in hand and then the third component was that sense of purpose mm -hmm. there's that sense that's this unified sense of purpose so um, now those are all things that seem straightforward enough but it's so interesting I've witnessed in the various places I've worked at, how often that can be one of the hardest things to achieve. It is. Because right. it seems so nebulous, yeah. uh, but that has to be modeled, right? You know, how do right. you, you know, so you can't have a leader that's kind of just mouthing those things. They have to be modeling that sense of safety. They have to be able to encourage a spectrum of opinion and perspectives. You know, you have to be tactful how you express things, right. but nonetheless, you have to feel comfortable. You can communicate and express your truth. And be vulnerable yourself, well, that's right? It. You know, I mean, and it's, I think talking about psychological safety, there was a study at Google about the most effective teams, and yeah. again, that was the key differentiator: right. psychological safety, right? And that's not something you give a team. It's not like okay, yeah. you give them a bonus, <laughs> right. right? You gotta create it, foster it, support it, and the vulnerability is again is such a key component, which. That we got to start early because right. if as a kid, when a little kid, right, and I don't know when mm -hmm. age it changes, but clearly a toddler is open and vulnerable, right? right? But at some point they close up. Right. How can we help them not to do that? Yeah. And you need to know, you need to feel safe to be vulnerable, right? right? So how do we create an environment and you know, that's at home to not judge? Yeah. How quickly do we as parents judge, right? And at school and everywhere else, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, a growth we got to do as parents, right? as colleagues, as business leaders. Right. Um, but it, it has a huge benefit if we can do it. Absolutely. And it's so interesting how it seems historically you wanted to leave emotions out of the workplace. And now <laughs> there's a recognition that, in fact, right. it's so important to, to have them because that's, that's what makes us human. Yes, but it's uh, so hard. You know, it really is. And, and yet, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of hopeful signs out there in terms of whether it be organizations, companies uh, that are beginning to do this work. And 
and at the very least, there's uh, <laughs> at least sending signals to the rest of us of what's yes. possible. And some of these organizations are ones that are quite respected. So right. this is that even has a bigger impact. Yes, it's certainly happening. You see signs everywhere. And I was thinking about just the simple example at my departure, kind of farewell party when I left my big job. Somebody who I really respected and who supported me made a very nice, you know, speech. And one of the things he said that, you know, I was so calm and in all these difficult, tense situations and so unemotional and so even keeled. And, you know, it was very, very nice. It was yeah. meant as a compliment. And only later I reflected on the cost of that. Right. Mm. So, yes, you would. I, I was very calm in these tense negotiations. Mm. But there's a cost to that because right. I shut out my emotions, yeah. right? And then they came out in unhealthy ways. Right. So how can it? And that was the gold standard to be that right. way. But how can it be? Can we change that to have the gold standard just be human? Right. Yeah. Uh, and then the more that we're able to appropriately, because obviously there's, uh, you know, times when emotions can be totally volatile and volcanic and out of control and so I don't think anyone's advocating for that yet you know there you know within reason there's going to be times where there's sadness and anger and frustration Oops. and joy and uh, and the more that we can learn to manage appropriately hence the importance of emotional intelligence mm -hmm. then then I think we'll uh, strike strike the right balance uh, you know I know that you've alluded to the work that you're doing now at, at, at Wisdom Labs I'm just wondering as a way of wrapping this conversation up if you could talk about some of the work that you are doing and for people that are interested in trying to incorporate more wisdom at work if you have any suggestions as the website or yeah. like where to begin sure happy to do that so at wisdom labs we bring kind of the science of mindfulness resilience emotional awareness to the workplace you know, we do it in workshops. We do. We have an app called Wise at Work, which I encourage everybody to check out. And we also do it through this communities program that we talked about earlier. So it's really about, you know, helping people be wiser at work and have it influence then how they show up as a as a human being, as yeah. a person everywhere. So it's a it's a lot of fun, and we have you know there are many companies doing work like that. So it's uh, the path to changing. And just anecdotally, or in terms of case studies, what would you say is uh, a success that people that have maybe gone in, maybe skeptically or maybe openly, but what, what should people expect by doing this work? Or what's an example of what's happened? Have you seen increase in productivity? Or is it just well-being? Is it a combination? Is it measurable in a way that often right. probably a lot of companies want to see? Yeah. Great question. And it's, it, the attribution analysis is tough, right? So if you, I always tell companies, if you do this work, I cannot guarantee you your stock price will go up because right. there are too many factors playing <laughs> yeah. in. What we have seen is an you know, increase in mindfulness, um, resilience, decrease in stress of like 17 to 19% after in-person interventions like workshops. Wow. The really cool one was a study where we did looked at the molecular level. So we took blood, which not every employer likes to take yeah, their employee's right. blood, but we yeah. did in this case, did a pre-post assessment of a training that was 12 weeks, one hour a week. So one hour a week training, and then people had the app, and we did a pre-post assessment mm -hmm. of, I think it was 56, maybe 54 RNA markers. Because mm -hmm. we always think stress is cortisol, right? Right. But that's the... That's when you get startled. The fire truck goes by, your cortisol, cortisol levels shoot through the roof, right? 
but really the latent stress is the real, the systemic mm. stress, right? So that was measured with these RNA markers that code for inflammation and immunity. Mm. And we had, after this intervention of 12 weeks, a statistically significant increase in immunity and decrease in inflammation wow. at the molecular level. Wow. Amazing. And that is cool, right? That that's, is really so cool. So we'd yeah. love to repeat that in a bigger study, but that's what shows it has an impact, and that's what we're yeah. excited about. That is very exciting. Any, any final thoughts, words about being wise at work? I would just say it's a movement. Come join us. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for the conversation. I uh, hope to, we can continue it. Thank you, Aranda. That was fun.